Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shift, a podcast about mobility. I'm Pete Bigelow, your host and reporter at the Automotive News. Hey, everybody. It's Leslie Allen, editor of Shift Magazine, and I hope everybody's enjoying the holiday season. We wish a happy new year. And it's Alexa St. John covering tech and suppliers. Uh, Joining us on the podcast today is Jessica Robinson, board chair of the Michigan Mobility Institute, and she's also a co-founder and partner of Assembly Ventures. Uh, We talked to Jessica about what the Michigan Mobility Institute is, uh, specific initiatives at the Institute, creating jobs in the mobility industry, and what changes to mobility as a result of COVID are temporary and uh, what seems more permanent. Well, Alexa, speaking of COVID, you know, of course, 2020 was quite a year, largely because of the pandemic, but also, you know, we saw a lot of changes going on in the world of mobility, many of which we covered right here on this podcast. Uh, For example, we saw the rise of what we're calling SPAC mania, which is the whole phenomenon with companies that are startups that are going public by way of latching on to other public companies called special purpose acquisition companies or SPACs. We also saw a variety of AV developments and uh, of course, many of which our fearless host Pete Bigelow has covered. So Pete, um, what would you say about the, uh, the big stories of 2020? You know, it's funny that I thought for a long time that the big story of 2020 was about uh, ADAS, aka Advanced Driver Assistance Systems, because uh, there was not a whole lot of news on the automated vehicle front until um, you know Waymo expanded its Waymo One service in October, and uh, pretty much since then it's been a major development every week, if not every day, on the automated vehicle front. So. Uh, I guess 2020 was a, a tale of of two um, you know business models, one being ADAS and the other being AVs. Uh, and obviously excited to see how things continue to transpire here in early 2021. Well, and you know, just looking at really the entire mobility ecosystem, uh, from ride hailing to micro mobility to public transit and everything in between. I mean, it just seems like the industry really adapted in some pretty remarkable ways. And that's not to say that there isn't work left to do. And, you know, so much of these changes, of course, came from tragedy, but, you know, many found a few silver linings and some progress. I mean, in terms of cities trying out new mobility-friendly landscapes or delivery bots helping deliver really needed goods and products in a distanced way and and other things responding to uh, so many different changing needs that we never really thought we'd have. But there's one thing that hasn't changed, of course, and if it's January, that means it's time for CEF. And next week, we're going to be covering the annual technology show. And of course, CES, uh, for the first time, is going all virtual. So this year is all virtual, and we're expecting to see some changes uh, to what we normally see at CES, of course. You know, there's obviously not the crowds and not the, you know, the networking that takes place, but they have found ways, I believe, to replicate that in some respects. So um, some OEMs and suppliers have bowed out of the show or or replaced their presence with a separate non-affiliated event. So I'm wondering, Pete, uh, what your thoughts are about a virtual CES. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously different. I think what is going to be most interesting to me is 
what's what's the difference of doing uh, you know just another virtual uh, webinar or showcase versus uh, you know what what does CES do to elevate itself beyond that? Because uh, everybody's doing that these days, and and many of the companies that you mentioned uh, that are bowing out are just kind of doing their own virtual showcase. Uh, so I think uh, you know CES has its work cut out for it to kind of you know recapture the magic that makes all the the hassle of the show worthwhile. And uh, I'm looking forward to attending virtually and uh, and seeing what happens. I agree with you there. I'm I'm also looking forward to what comes of the virtual show and you know it just it very much so will be interesting how it all shapes up. We certainly can't see things like say the Hyundai flying robo taxi in person uh, which definitely made a splash in 2020. Uh but I bet there'll be lots else to check out. And we'll have more on that show uh next week uh, including a chat with Gary Shapiro uh and others uh who are participating. Uh, but, you know, as we wrap up uh, 2020 conversations, how do you think 2021 will differ in the mobility world? It's hard to tell, Alexa, what's going to happen, obviously, this year. But I think we're going to see uh, companies resetting their plans, going for business models that provide a really good return on investment, such as using their autonomous technology expertise in areas such as hauling goods versus hauling people. You know, at the same time, we're seeing a bunch of um, driverless deployments, you know, at the end of 2020. I mean, those really exploded, didn't they, Pete? They definitely did. Uh, And I'd say like looking ahead to 2021, that the fact that Neuro got uh, the first permit in California here late in uh, December 2020 to to begin commercial operations like that to me is huge uh, and it kind of bookends these stories of 2020. First, they got the the permit from NHTSA to uh, or the exemption from NHTSA in February 2020 to deploy vehicles that don't conform to existing motor vehicle safety standards. Then at the end of 2020, they get the permit to. Um, operate in a commercial capacity. So I, I see more of that on the horizon in 2021 uh, from neuro and competitors kind of itching to get going. And I think the other major 2021 storyline will be what happens to public transit. And uh, there are obviously a lot of uh, holes in budgets uh, for transportation departments, thanks to COVID. And uh, you know, we'll see how service continues to be impacted. So lots to come, lots to pay attention to in 2021. Uh, And we cover some of these topics with Jessica Robinson. Uh, So maybe without further ado, here's our conversation with Jessica Robinson from the Michigan Mobility Institute. Uh, Jessica, welcome back to the Shift Podcast. It's great to uh, have the chance to talk to you again. Thank you so much. It's nice to be back. Thanks for having me. Maybe to kick things off here, uh, let's just remind our listeners, what is the Michigan Mobility Institute's what is the mission of the organization? Yeah, so the Michigan Mobility Institute is, yes, based here in Michigan, right from the heart of Detroit. And the focus of the organization really from the beginning has been on the future of training and education for professionals in this industry, whether it's a technician all the way through someone with an advanced degree. And what we really hope to bring to our work is the voice of 
the employer, making sure that those that are on the front lines of business are informing the training and curriculum to make sure that we're actually educating today's talent and the next generation for the jobs that will be out there. Obviously, in the past, Detroit and Michigan uh, have been called the arsenal of democracy. And I saw on your website, uh, you say the city and state could, could be the arsenal of mobility. What, uh, what exactly does that mean? What on earth does that mean? Yes. Yeah. So Chris Thomas, who is a co-founder and collaborator of mine, including with the Institute, is fond of that phrase. And when we think about being an arsenal of mobility, it really speaks to that question of where is industry going and what comes next? And as perhaps with the arsenal of democracy, it was the people that powered the industrial know-how to actually be able to deliver you know, those machines that were very important for us at that part of our history. And so as we think about being the arsenal of mobility today, it, it again starts with people and making sure that they're trained and ready, but also that for, I think, frankly, everybody who's here in the industry in the region, making sure that we are not losing sight of where the industry is headed, whether it's something like the increasing arrival of electric vehicles and battery technology or the importance of software for not just automobiles, but frankly, many other things that move as well. Um, and so I think it's two parts. It's the people as well as the technology that will kind of continue to push the industry forward. How have you seen uh, the mobility world change in that pretty short period of time? And how has your thinking about uh, the MMI evolved? Yeah, so a lot happens over the course of two years. I think one of the things that's been really encouraging since we launched the Institute is continuing to connect with others in the community who see the importance of some of these topics to be recognized as an organization, again, kind of pushing this conversation forward and partnering with others that maybe have been uh, fighting a version of this fight for some time now, and they have a new ally uh, working alongside them in the community. I think, uh, I mean, look, we're recording this conversation while sitting in different places, working from home. There's no denying that COVID and yeah, many of the challenges that we've we've been through this year in many ways heighten the importance of movement in our lives, things that maybe we took for granted previously, whether it's our own personal mobility, our ability to get to work and school. Do we even go to work and school to do those things? And then the movement of goods. I mean, uh, a lot of people are using delivery services and things coming to our homes maybe for the first time than we did before. And so I think what maybe has changed over the, the past two years is it's heightened certain areas of technology and maybe pushed their time horizons forward a little bit more. Uh, in other cases, it's pushed the timelines a little further out. If you think about maybe shared rides and things, uh, I, I believe the market will respond, but for the time being, we don't really want to share a ride in an enclosed space if we don't have to. Um, but it's also, I think, for many, because it's been an economic disruption, personally, 
uh, also led them to say, okay, what am I doing to continue to be prepared for the future? And every company we talk to is, is thinking about its workforce front and center, and are they positioned well to kind of take the next chapter um, into to technology as well. So give us a little bit uh, of a scope. Uh, how many students are utilizing the Michigan Mobility Institute? Yeah, so one of the things that I'm really proud of is the progress that we've made with Wayne State and our partnership to bring bring to life, frankly, a new master's of robotics program. It was something that really, I think, encompasses the hopes and goals that we had for launching a a mobility-focused master degree. Um, So enrollment started just this fall, so we're just getting started, uh, but I believe they've enrolled about 10 or 15 people brand new into that master's program, uh, having only received the approval from the Board of Governors back in the spring. So very quick response from a, a group of young people that wanted to move forward. Um, the other area where people are engaging with us and in, in learning is um, through a program that we ran this summer in partnership with Grow Detroit Young Talent, which was focused on youth apprenticeship here in Detroit. We had about 20 people that uh, participated in that program and would love to tell you more about that. And then what we're really working on now is the Mobility On-Ramp Collaborative, which focuses on adults in the industry who have an opportunity to learn um, programming and data science skills that are, uh, frankly, the training is being defined by the employers we're working with as we speak. So no one's enrolled quite yet. But uh, in partnership with the state of Michigan, our hope is that we'll be able to put uh, at least 50 people through that program starting later this year. Jessica, let's pick up with that. Uh, You know, who are the partners on something like that? And, you know, is the model that you are uh, kind of, you know, pioneering and carving out uh, really like collaborative with, uh, you know, with employers and kind of quickly pivoting to produce students who are who are experts in, in exactly what those employers want. Yeah, it's a it's a really exciting model in the sense that through a collaborative, a, a convening organization, that's how the Michigan Mobility Institute thinks of ourselves here. The work that we really do is, is creating the table and bringing various parties together. They bring the expertise to say, here's what we need to hire this year, next year, three and five years out and then actually define, in this case, a credential, which whether you're an employer at one of those employee at one of those companies or any other company, you can then go out and get that credential. What's really cool about the collaborative is any one of these companies could have done training like this or done this work on their own, but there's a recognition that by doing it together, you're actually kind of pressure testing what you're designing, but frankly, you're also doing it in a way that it's a rising tide lifts all ships type of approach, or you're expanding the pie so that they're not all kind of poaching from the same talent pool. And I mean, we have a long history here in Michigan of uh, engineers working for suppliers and going to work for the OEs and back and forth. 
Um, if we don't address the deeper underlying issue, which is the total number of people that are, are ready and trained, that will just continue to persist with, you know, again, the arrival of even more software. So it's a, it's a broader minded approach, but still with a business goal, which is uh, we need to hire people so that we can be competitive in the marketplace. So um, we're very lucky to, again, be working with the state of Michigan uh, as kind of initial funding support for our collaborators, as well as others focused on different um, different industries in the state. But our employer partners include uh, some pretty notable names. So we work with uh, Bosch, with Ford, and then two startups as well. So we're working with May Mobility and Integral IO. And one of the things that I love about the, the dynamics of the collaborative is they're all facing similar challenges, but the scale, of course, is very different. So a startup needs to hire yesterday, and they may not have the same internal talent pool that a company like a Bosch or a Ford does uh, that they can draw within. So they have to go outside and, and source differently. And to see the HR teams from these various companies actually sitting at a table and trading ideas and best practices, uh, I just don't think you would expect that they would bring that level of kind of that true spirit of collaboration to the table. And the other kind of really cool thing that we're able to do is this collaborative methodology is one that's been used, um, frankly, in other industries, as I said, but across the country. And so there's some really good best practices that we're able to use um, to kind of walk a group of employers who have never done this work together down a path so that they can start with an idea and get to the end goal, which again is people trained with the right skills so that they can either move them into a different job, reduce the time to hire, or potentially avoid um, laying some people off and putting them into a retraining program instead. When you talk about the kind of collective rising tide, helping to create jobs in Detroit, helping to keep jobs in the region, uh, who's is the competition for that? Silicon Valley, China, uh, a global rising tide for the whole mobility industry. How do you how do you kind of frame that? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it, there are there segments of jobs which each have a slightly different answer to that. Certainly, um, in the manufacturing centers, those are those are technician jobs based here in Detroit, and so how you address maybe folks being ready to work on electrified powertrain uh, has this strong geographic element. But Alexa, to your question around when it, what's changed uh, over the past couple of years, again, with this work from home environment, many of the jobs that we're focused on preparing people for at the Institute are software-based. And so they don't necessarily have that same baked in requirement of that hands-on presence to do engineering. And the, the startups that we're talking to actually have expanded their geographic um, recruitment area for these jobs. So before, maybe there was a requirement that you had to be here in Southeast Michigan. Maybe there's not anymore. So that's actually a challenge that we have now as we think about growing the, the talent pool here is if you can go and recruit software people in Austin or Silicon Valley or, or wherever, uh, and they don't have to move, does that really kind of drive economic development and kind of bringing the community together here? 
Um, but I would say the other area that we're seeing kind of this competition for talent isn't so much a geographic one, but it's a sector one. So if you, particularly with younger folks, if you imagine someone coming out of school, even if it's a coding boot camp, um, they probably have in their minds here in the region that they would love to work for, you know, one of the, the big software companies. And increasingly, those software companies are also working in the automotive space. But sometimes the issue is shifting those, those people's mindset about the fact that these jobs do even exist in automotive. Um, and again, the work that we did with the young interns this summer really highlighted for me, it, it made it very obvious again that even though the industry's right here in their backyard, we don't always do a good job of talking about what some of those jobs are. So if you, if you get to a point of being interested in software, studying software in school, graduating, uh, either with a certificate or a degree to be able to do programming, you still might not think of automotive. So there's uh, another type of talent competition that's out there for these jobs. Now, there's this phrase that we've seen uh, the Michigan Mobility Institute use, um, and we've we've also seen it elsewhere, this idea of the fourth industrial revolution. Is this mm-hmm. specifically referring to digitizing the workforce? I think there's an element to that, yes. Um, I think sometimes when we talk as an industry about the fourth industrial revolution, it speaks to different manufacturing practices as well, whether that's 3D printing and additive. But I do think that that time, uh, kind of that on-demand element of 3D printing changes, the rapid iteration changes, and the digitization more broadly. Where I would say that comes back to this question of people and talent is, I mean, throughout my career and even in school, people warned me I was going to have to be a, a lifelong learner. At the time when we were younger, we were like, okay, well, what on earth does that actually mean? Turns out that uh, things are going to continue to move so quickly that we're, we need to continue to be plugged in to continue to brush up our skills, right? And so I think that's where some of these questions have the fourth industrial revolution comes back to uh, the people question as much as any one particular technology. Jessica, you mentioned it earlier, and I wanted to make sure we uh, looped back to it. Uh, what is the Grow Detroit's Young Talent Program that you're uh, involved with? Yeah, so Grow Detroit Young Talent is a apprenticeship uh, program that's been running for many years here in the city of Detroit with the goal of giving young people in the city an opportunity to maybe have a first job or a second job and start to learn some of the the professional skills and the expectations that come along with entering the workforce. But it's also a chance for them to get exposure to employers and industry sectors that might be of interest and kind of test it out before they make any long-term commitments with schooling or, uh, you know, to go to school in some cases, even or not. Um, But like everything else, it changed this year because of school closures and uh, some of the stay-at-home orders that we had. So Grow Detroit Young Talent actually went online and uh, worked with a local partner to offer a digital experience for these young people. So we got connected to Grow Detroit Young Talent through their technology provider, through actually um, an opportunity I had 
to work with the Henry Ford Museum as their entrepreneur in residence. And so the focus there was on the future of mobility, power, and energy. And over the course of that residency in connecting with Grow Detroit Young Talent, we actually created a new set of learning modules that these interns were able to take this summer focused on innovation as well as the future of mobility. And there was actually a manufacturing slant to some of the technology. So we looked at robotics in the manufacturing line and uh, actually it was with General Motors right here in Michigan that the first industrial manufacturing robot was, was rolled out in that type of environment. But we also talked with the students about uh, different forms of emerging technology in manufacturing, whether it's VR, on the line or additive or some of the other you know, things Alexa, that you were just asking about. And so it was a chance for us to make some of these new partnerships, again, people that have been doing this work for a number of years, but bring this next chapter and next phase of where the future of mobility is going into those existing programs. And it was, it was pretty impactful. We asked the students to do and a recap at the end of the session, uh, talking about their experience and some of the things that they learned. And many expressed surprise that these types of jobs were out here. Uh, they only knew one form of the automotive industry, and maybe it was because a family member had been involved. And uh, several of the, the young folks, including, I'm excited to say, some of the young women, were uh, equally excited to continue to explore uh, what it means to be an innovator in mobility, which was pretty cool. On the executive side of the programming at the Michigan Mobility Institute, what uh, what really is the selling point? I mean, if I'm considering getting a standard MBA versus, uh, say, the added benefit that I would get from the executive program programming. Yeah, great question. On the executive side, so this is an area, honestly, being a two-year-old organization, we haven't built out as fundamentally as some of the other areas yet. But I think one of the things that we learned last summer as we were working with Wayne State on its degree program, it's the, the domains that are driving change in mobility are not just engineering, they're not just computer science, they're not just business model innovation. Mobility really exists in some form of intersection of at least two, if not all of those areas. And so, I, I mean, we've even connected with um, a great example, the uh, Ross Business School at the University of Michigan. There's a automotive and mobility club there. What we're seeing in, in those cases, even for younger people in their careers, is they want to understand where the business trends are changing, but also uh, how technology is, is coming in, or excuse me, they want to understand the business fundamentals. But what they also are trying to understand is how technology is changing the business landscape and the business models. And so I think for existing executives as well as young people coming in, that's really the marker of success and that comfort sitting on the, 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 the marker, if you will, between those two worlds. But the executive piece is an area that we're very excited to continue to build out. 
Um, I think one of the, the things that we saw this year is it just was a, a shockingly hard year for a lot of people in automotive, both at the, the manufacturers and suppliers. And so they were focused on core business as much as thinking about where the future is and, and bringing in training at that level. Jessica, I'm curious, uh, you know, hearing you kind of list the three dimensions of mobility, uh, uh, you know, mobility is obviously not just automotive either. We've, we've had on the podcast uh, an executive from the Michigan Aerospace Manufacturers Association. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've heard uh, announcements from, from Michigan Tech about autonomous applications for the maritime industry. So I'm curious, uh, are you primarily focused on, on land-based mobility or are you kind of seeking to jumpstart, you know, mobility jobs and the mobility workforce uh, in air, sea, uh, as well? Uh, that is a great question. And you're, you're right in the sense that Michigan is our home. We definitely gravitate toward automotive as maybe the, the primary mode of mobility. I would say this is actually an area that our program manager, Dexter, really encourages us to continue to keep our eyes wide open, both in how we're defining mobility, but also the reach. So different forms of transportation, but frankly, also how skills in um, computer architecture, for instance, might go beyond something that moves on the ground and uh, keeping, keeping the design open to make sure we're not focusing too narrowly on, you know, something that any one particular company, um, you know, is really working on. But I think that's the other great thing about doing that work from right here in Michigan. We know that, uh, you know, Maritime, great example, so much trade goes on right here on the Detroit River. There's focus on rocketry and things for the first time, but startups right in their own backyard working on the future of flight. So, you know, for the collaborative in particular, uh, while the founding partners, if you will, are, are largely focused on ground-based, vehicular-based mobility, uh, not to the exclusion of those other things. And we're seeing some parallels, um, particularly between aviation and um, the future of cars and, and trucks as it relates to autonomy. Um, system design and things, uh, there's, there's actually a lot that translates back and forth. We've talked a lot about creating jobs in the mobility industry. Can you address concerns that automation in particular will take away jobs? And, you know, speaking of the trucking industry, that industry has pushed back in certain quarters against laws and regulations that would enable autonomous trucking. Yeah, yeah, it's something we think about a lot. And actually, very uh, early on, as we set out on this journey, uh, one of the groups that we connected with is a DC based organization. Pete, I don't think we talked about them last time. They're called PTIO, the Partnership for Transportation Innovation and Opportunity. And they ask very, uh, very much the same question where will job disruption come? in what time frame and how do we enable people to transition? I think there's no denying that disruption will come. Um, I think we're seeing it first in areas around um, powertrain design as electrified powertrains you know, start to become part of 
the, the production model years. Um, certainly suppliers have been thinking about this for some time. Um, I know the State Office of Future Mobility and Electrification is thinking about this too. Um, our hope is that particularly in these software-focused jobs, they will be ones that are in demand and will persist for the long run. So where possible, we are talking to the employers about um, reskilling existing uh, team members versus said, kind of them letting them go. Um, but in other cases, this is also about welcoming that next generation in with a skill set that will persist for the long run. Um, so that might be a, a set of resources that the folks who are interested in this job transition question could check out is the, the PTIO website. They have a number of really excellent reports that look at um, both the timing of some of the job disruption as well as the numbers, uh, including thinking about trucking. Um, but again, if we've seen anything from COVID, it's really, I think, reinforced the importance of transportation and logistics in this country. Um, CDL drivers are far in demand at this particular moment in time. So um, it is something to consider, but perhaps not as immediate and urgent as, as we would have thought of maybe three or four years ago when uh, everyone was forecasting autonomous vehicles at scale in 20 and 21. Uh, let's talk big picture for a moment. Of the changes that you've seen um, in mobility as a result of COVID, uh, which ones, which changes are temporary and which seem uh, more permanent? And generally speaking, what is your outlook on the mobility industry uh, moving forward? Yeah, I I think one of the, the big changes that we have to grapple with both at the regional level, but frankly across the country is the role and future of public transit. And, um, you know, there's still really great efforts underway to think about structuring regional transit for the Southeast Michigan area as a backbone for uh, all sorts of transportation solutions. I'm a big believer that transit uh, should be something that other innovations, whether from the private sector through a startup or some other initiative plug into. And I think that COVID has really laid bare the funding challenges that transit systems across the country have, but it's also really laid bare that there are many in our community that still fundamentally rely on transit to get back and forth to their jobs. And so we can't can't ignore that population. We can't ignore uh, the importance of public transit in this solution. Um, but we do have to, I think, take, take some hard looks at exactly when and where and how transit is funded. So I think that's something that that is has been longstanding and remains. Um, perhaps we finally take the opportunity to make some of those structural changes moving forward. Um, that's not a given. That's that's a choice that we still have to make. I think to the question of some of the more maybe near-term things, I already mentioned a little bit around shared rides. I think for many who have a choice right now, um, there will be a slower return uh, to sharing small spaces like that until vaccine levels become pretty pervasive across the population here in the U.S. But I think some of the, the economics that were driving 
shared models, whether it was shared rides or shared asset use, those continue to persist. And the reason I say there's different forms of sharing is you think about something like car sharing, which I spent many years in. Um, you and your, your family and your friends are the only ones in the vehicle, but the asset is shared. Uh, we're seeing car rental and car sharing of that model kind of come back where people want a little bit more control over their environment, but they still like the economic benefit of being able to use a service like that when they want. Um, and then I think, you know, to the, the other kind of main impact that we're seeing that probably lasts for a little while is just demand on overall new car sales uh, and used car market where prices are up right now for used cars is, is um, are revisiting uh, their primary vehicle choice. Um, I just read a report the other day in Boston and New York. Many people are saying that they will choose to drive when they have to go back to the office. Um, I think that for some they will, but uh, all of those economic pressures that existed before around parking and parking availability, those didn't go away over COVID. Maybe fewer people are in the office overall, so the time horizon is a little different, but those pressures don't go away. Um, I do think that maybe not so much directly related to COVID, but coming out of the federal government as part of kickstarting the economy and perhaps getting more folks back to work, we will see some funding that focuses on energy infrastructure that will create jobs and those jobs will be in uh, some of these areas of future mobility technology. So that will be uh, you know, another set of tailwinds that push some of these trends forward, perhaps more quickly than they would have taken place before. With, you know, all of the changes that you've just talked about, you know, we're also seeing uh, shifts of people moving from urban areas to rural mm -hmm. areas or, or leaving cities. And, you know, we're seeing more young people looking to be car owners for the first time uh, and obviously a massive uptick in delivery services. With all of that going on, uh, is congestion about to get worse? Yeah, I wish I had a crystal ball on the question of, you know, people's eagerness to live in cities. I myself, I'm a big fan of cities and all of the benefits that it brings, including economic. Um, I think that, you know, to the, to the root of your question, um, we will see over, over time, but um, at the end of the day, we will still need to move and the goods that support us will still need to move. I think the question becomes more around time when we move and how far we travel. Maybe for a segment of the population, the commute is fundamentally changed where there's not this nine to five rush in the same ways. Um, but there are a number of people that still have, have time bound jobs. Um, some of the research from other cities around the world as people return to work. Yes, congestion came back, uh, air pollution and, and things like that came back, uh, particularly in China uh, as the workforce returned. Uh, I do think that there is a risk and a danger if everyone starts driving back and forth that congestion does become worse. Um, but we're seeing other forms of congestion too, again, whether it's transportation and logistics where um, booking 
time on a transcontinental shipping freighter. It's harder than it used to be. Getting a space in a truck is harder than it used to be. Um, demand for uh, on-demand on type delivery things is harder than it used to be. Uh, cities are still grappling with demands on use of their curb space to accommodate all of the, the trucks that are delivering stuff. So uh, I would say there is still congestion in the system taking place in other ways even now. Um, and, you know, our hope uh, at both at the Institute and the work that I do more broadly is that uh, innovators will continue to bring new ideas to to the world to uh, address some of those inefficiencies and the congestion. Jessica, we haven't gotten to ask you about your work more broadly yet. Uh, and you did mention your uh, past experience in car sharing. Uh, for those who don't know, just you know, tell us about your background and how you kind of got into this transportation and mobility space. Yeah, so my transition into mobility happened back when I was living in Seattle. Uh, and actually, Alexa, to your question, congestion and traffic was terrible where I lived, where we had people commuting into the city, and then we had people commuting uh, into some of the suburbs where the technology companies were. Uh, and it was when I moved into the city of Seattle for the first time that um, I had a chance to ride a bike to work. I had a chance to commute by bus to work and get around. And it, it really opened up my eyes personally to some of the benefits of those alternate modes. But it was in Seattle that I first learned about uh, and started working in car sharing. And I think about uh, when I told my mom, actually, that I took a job with Zipcar, this car sharing company. She was very concerned that I was going to be riding around in a car with a stranger all day. Uh, and I said, no, no, mom, that's crazy. Uh, I will still be driving myself. Little, of course, did I know that only a few years later, uh, some of the rideshare companies would come onto the market where we would, of course, take for granted riding around in someone else's car with them. But it was in Seattle, having kind of this change in personal experience at Zipcar that I also started to talk to people in my, my role in the work that I did about how their housing choices, their housing access, and how their transportation choices affected them personally from a budget perspective. Um, Americans are not unique in this regard, but we bear it a little more acutely that our number one and two expenses for most households are the cost of our home, whether we rent or we own, and our cost of transportation. And so I get to talk to all sorts of people who were worried about a car payment that was too expensive or they couldn't afford a car or they had too many vehicles in their house and they were looking forward to getting rid of one of them and having a flexible option. It was really very personal. And one, I was surprised that people would open up and share some of this information. But that for me is really what hooked me on the mobility industry and set me down this path today, which includes time working. Uh, I mentioned Ford as a partner. I worked with the Ford Smart Mobility team right here in Dearborn and in Detroit. Worked on a number of projects across North America. And then some of the work that I do today with Assembly Ventures is thinking about investing in the future of mobility technology with my partners here in Detroit and in Berlin. So we have an international focus. So for me, I'm more than all in on the future of mobility. And I really focus on 
these questions around people, questions around place. You cannot separate mobility without this question of where is it taking place in the world? And then, you know, connecting with all sorts of innovators, pushing the envelope forward to kind of challenge the status quo for how we move today. Jessica, if I can kind of bring together some of these strings as, uh, as we close out our time here, uh, I hear you talking about the, the high cost of transportation for, for families and, and individuals in the U.S. Uh, we've talked about all the COVID disruption and, and then also the fact that we're all working from home as we record this today. So is, is mo- does mobility include the, uh, the freedom to say we don't need to move around uh, as much, uh, at least as human beings? Obviously, you laid out the, the delivery congestion. Can maybe we trade, trade delivery congestion for, for lack of, of human uh, cargo, for lack of a better word? Yeah, I mean, for years, we've talked about people movers, the movement of, of people. The, the dialogue, I think, has expanded for many this year to the question of the movement of people and goods. Um, I'm not sure prior to the challenges that we've had this year that even I would have thought of a, a software platform as a digital substitute for commuting or the office environment, but here we are for so many people. Um, I think though, I mean, even look as vaccines are shipping around the country today as we speak, it it does really still speak to the importance of that transportation network and infrastructure that underpins it all. I think just the kind of the demand load that sits on top of it is what shifts and changes over time. Um, But yes, uh, I I think that there are new substitutes that maybe we didn't consider before and have fundamentally changed the world of mobility as we think about both training people, but also working in the industry moving forward. Jessica, thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us today. It's great to have you back on the podcast. Absolutely. Great to be here with you, Pete, and really great to chat with you, Alexa. Great conversation, guys, with Jessica Robinson. Thank you so much, Jessica, for joining us. And Pete, can you give us a little preview about what's happening next week? As part of uh, CES next week, we will have a daily podcast Monday through Thursday, uh, starting with Gary Shapiro, the CEO of the Consumer Technology Association that that runs the show. Uh, We had Gary on last year, so it'll mark his second appearance on the Shift podcast, but will be great to catch up, uh, especially at a time when, when obviously the show is going through the, the conversion, at least for a year, from, from physical to virtual. Uh, so a lot to talk about with Gary, and, uh, and then we'll have other guests throughout the week as well. So uh, hope our listeners check back on a regular basis. Uh, but that is it for today. Uh, thank you to Jessica again, and, and thanks so much for listening. 